So while you're kind of finding your seats, um, especially those of you who might be here for the first time, it's kind of navigating your way. You're already a little bit thrown off because we had fire, and now you're a little thrown off because we have an intermission and people are grabbing food. Um, in your seat, you have a note card. Guess what that's for? Yeah, for notes. Oh, for fanning today. Jan's right. It's usually for notes, but today it's your personal fan. Um, and I'm Paul. I'm the pastor here. I'm the one that gets to do most of the teaching. And you have joined us on the last day of a series that we called Stand. Um, it is based out of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. And, and Paul said this. He said, having done everything to stand, stand. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you would, don't raise your hand, find that frustrating that Paul would say, so after you've done everything to stand, keep doing that, right? It's like, come on, Paul. Dude, give me something else, right? Give me something new. So having, having everything else stand. What we're going to learn this morning is this. We stand. Paul wrote that because he was 100% confident in what Jesus did at the cross. 100% confident about what Jesus did in the tomb. And because he knew what had happened before that, he said, stand. Listen, I'm going to give you the, re the recap Easter version. You ready? Check this out. We said that we stand in obedience. Do you know why we stand in obedience? Because Jesus was obedient to the cross. We stand up in prayer. You know why we stand up in prayer? Because the Bible says that when Jesus was obedient to the cross, he was raised to the highest place. And that's where we access heavenly things. We talked about standing with one another in unity. Remember that? You know why we stand with one another in unity? Because at the cross, Jesus destroyed the things that divide us. We talked about standing out in holiness. Do you know why we stand out in holiness? Because at the cross, Jesus gave us a new identity. He called us out and he set us apart. Last week, we talked about standing down in service. And why do we do that? Because Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And this morning, we're going to wrap it all up by talking about the fact that we stand with, we stand for people because God is for people and that statement alone can be hard to wrap our brains around because sometimes we're convinced that God is against us what I want you to know is this the reason that you think God is against you is because God has gotten some really bad PR the church that is called to carry out the mission of God has done about as good a job as the security people did for United. I mean, you're not under a rock, right? You know that this time last Sunday, there was a, a doctor on a plane that got pulled out of his seat, bashed his head, and they dragged him off. You've seen the video, I'm sure, by now, right? And so if you ask people, is United four passengers? They would say, no, here's how we know, because they... They did a little hashtag, new United Airline mottos. Here's one. We put the hospital in hospitality. <laughs> I think we have a few more. We treat you like we treat your luggage. <laughs> we have an offer you can't refuse. No, really. <laughs> I saw a couple more. Um, we have first class, business class, no class. We overbook, you pay the price. <laughs> These are, these are slogans that Twitter users came up with because this is the perception that the public has about United. 
So if United wanted to flash back to some of their own slogans, come fly with us or fly the friendly skies, doesn't feel like that's really true because the world saw a difference between what they said they were about and what they actually did. And that's why when I say that God is for us, so many of us in this room struggle. We struggle to believe that God could be for us because we're positive that he's against mankind. I love how a church in Atlanta says it. It's one of their core values. I love this as a core value. God's not in a bad mood. Man, if we could get that, if we could just get that. You, know, you woke up early this morning, it's Easter, you're trying to get your family dressed perfectly. You got small kids, there's not enough caffeine in the world, right? I mean, at some point, you're in the car and they look good, but you're all about to freak out on the inside, right? It's like, was it even worth it? It's hard. It's hard. It's easy to, be, it's easy to get in a bad mood. It's easy to be grumpy. But what you need to know is that God's not in a bad mood. And if we could just get that, it would totally change the way that we see the cross. I want you this morning to get one truth. God is for us. God is for us. If we got that, it would change the way we saw the cross. Listen, we would no longer see it as a sign of condemnation, but as an invitation. We would no longer see it as punishment of us. We would see it as payment for us. The cross is evidence of God's love for us. It was that love that motivated him to bridge the gap between us and him. John 3, 16. Uh, some of you did not grow up in church, but I bet you, I bet you that if I started that verse, you could say the word I leave out. You ready? John 3, 16 says, for God so, I knew you could do it. For God was so ticked off at the world. For God was so mad and grumpy. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's for people and we're for people. Today I got one point. If you, if you um, don't come to church all the time, you're used to like five, six, seven points or whatever. I got one point. This is it. God is for us. Period. That's your big idea. That's fun, isn't it? Big idea. Five words. God is for us, period. Now, why do we put the period there? Because even when I say God is for us, some of you are like, eh, oh no, Paul. I mean, you should see who I'm married to. Maybe you should come live in my house for a week. You wouldn't be saying God's for us. You might say God's for me, but you wouldn't say God's for them. Or we feel like, ah, he might be for me if I have a good week. Or he might be for me if I read the Bible. He might be for me if I pray, if I don't cuss, if I don't listen to country music. He might be for me. Kidding. God is for us, period. And because that's true, listen, we're in Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 31 through 39. That's where we're going to be today. Because... God is for us, period. Because that's true, I want to give you just two anchors for your life, okay? Just two anchors for your life. If God is for us, and he is, then, here's the first anchor. Gravestones.
become rolling stones. I know some of you are you're singing songs in your head right now because I said rolling stones. I get it. You're fine with it. Just don't sing out loud. Keep it in your head. Gravestones become rolling stones. If God is for us and he is, gravestones become rolling stones. We all know that on Easter we celebrate the fact that Jesus rolled the stone away, right? He's in the tomb. Angel shows up. Gone. He walks out. We get it. But you know what I think we fail to remember? That God still moves stones today. He's still in the business of removing gravestones from our lives. And Paul mentions three gravestones in Romans chapter 8. Now, before we read them, I, I, we don't have time to do this whole in-depth study of Romans chapter 8. Um, let me just say this. Sometimes we don't read the Bible because we don't know what to read. So I'm going to tell you what to read this week. Wake up every morning this week and just read Romans 8. I, I, it's hard to say what, like, it's the best chapter in the Bible because they're all, they're all good. But, man, Romans 8 is packed with truth about who we are in Christ, about what has been done for us. Let me just give you a few of them. We've been made free. We've been made alive. We've been adopted by God. We're led by God, prayed for by God, called by God, and we're being conformed to the image of God. All of those things are in Romans 8, and they've all been done for us. We didn't earn them. We're not, they're being done for us. What a list, right? And Paul's writing this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's listing all of these things that have been done for us. And then he gets to verse 31 and he asks the obvious question. What can I say in response to all of that? If all of this is true, what can I say in response to that? And here's what he said. If God is for us, and he is first gravestone he rolls away who can be against us opposition he rolls away the gravestone of opposition if, if God's for us who can be against us and and can we just answer the question for nobody really or nobody successfully right I mean we we all face opposition <laughs> I mean if you're in a room with another person there's opposition you have a boss co-workers Teachers, uh, students, we all face opposition. But not successfully. Because nobody can stand against God who now has our back. Opposition, who can be against us? Here's the second one. In verse 33, he says, if God is for us, and he is, who can bring a charge against us? Who can accuse us? He rolls away the gravestone of accusation. Now, listen, accusation, um, we don't think about that word a lot, but here's, here's how we are victims of accusation. You look in the mirror, and you don't see an overcomer. You look in the mirror, and you see, well, I guess this is the best I'll ever be. I'll never be one of those Christians. I'll never be, I'll never be a really good mom, a good husband. We accuse ourselves. The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It means that he's always accusing us to ourselves and to God. We face accusation all the time. And, and Paul says this, if it's true that we've been freed and we're alive and we're adopted, if we're led by God, prayed for by God, called by God, being conformed to the image of God, who can stand against us? Nobody. Who can even accuse us? Nobody. 
And then Paul rolls away the third gravestone. Separation. He says in verse 35, if God is for us, and he is, who then can separate us from the love of God? I don't know if there's a culture on the face of the planet that struggles with isolation and rejection more than America. But I know this for a fact. This room is packed. And it's full of people who feel alone. And Paul says, if all these things happen, can they separate you from the love of God? No. He rolls away that gravestone. And you know why opposition and accusation and separation can't affect us? Because Jesus experienced every one of those on the cross. Listen. He was opposed by Satan at the cross. Colossians says that, this is funny to me because it just reveals how stupid Satan was. But Colossians says that the cross was Satan's idea. I'm going to use the cross to publicly humiliate Jesus. And then Jesus used the cross and his resurrection to publicly humiliate Satan while he was trying to publicly humiliate him. Jesus faced opposition at the cross in Satan. And he overcame it. He faced accusation at the cross from men. Soldiers would stand at at the cross and they would yell up at him. If you really are the son of God, come down. We, we wouldn't say it like that. Nowadays, we would say it like Jim Carrey does, right? Smite me, almighty smiter, right? <laughs> he faced accusation from men, and he overcame it. And, and nobody has ever faced separation like Jesus did from God. On the cross, you got you to get this, man. The person who Philippians chapter 2 says was equal with God, did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, stepped out of the throne room of heaven and into our world and allowed men that he created to put him on a cross to accuse him of not being who he said he was. And then when all that said and done, what does he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, loneliness is a real thing, but none of us have ever experienced separation from God like Jesus did. Because Jesus has overcome all of those things, we are free of them. Gravestones become rolling stones, and the greatest one of all, the greatest gravestone, the greatest barrier in our lives, our own sin, Jesus obliterated it. Isaiah chapter 53 i got to read this to you. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And why is that? The next verse says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him a few verses later it says that the lord the iniquities of us all was laid on him all of the iniquity all the sin in this room heaped up in a pile placed on jesus 
He bore that. You've got to get this. There's nothing left to punish. I just read it to you from Isaiah 53. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. This is why God is no longer in a bad mood. Because when you and I sin, in Christ, we have an advocate who approaches the throne daily and intercedes on our behalf. God's not in a bad mood anymore because there's nothing left to punish. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The word is tetelestai. It means paid in full. Last Monday, Wendy and Sydney and I went to eat lunch. And while we were eating lunch, I decided, um, just really felt like the Lord said, that, like, pay for these other people. So we did. Can you imagine? And then we left. We couldn't watch. It would have been fun. Can you imagine if they, when they walked up to the counter and they, had, they said, I'm here to pay my bill. And the lady's like, it's been paid. If they'd have said, no, no, but I, don't, I want to pay it anyway. But, but so you can't. You, you can't pay it anyway. But I want to. I'm not leaving until I pay it. But it's been paid, right? I mean, it's, so at some point, she'd be like, put it in the tip jar, right? I mean, I can't, I can't even take payment for a bill because it's been paid. There's no more bill. There's nothing left for you and I to pay. It's been paid in full. Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say it is finished except for Paul. It's finished. He's removed the gravestones. And when we believe that, really believe that, it'll fuel our belief in the second anchor. Here it is. If God is for us, and he is, we know that gravestones become rolling stones. Listen to this. It means this, that God's greatest sacrifice proves that he won't run from our greatest struggles. So, I think sometimes we miss this truth, that the cross cost Jesus dearly. The cross cost God dearly. It cost him all to save all. Romans 8, 32 asks the obvious question. If God was willing to do that, give his own son, how much more will he do everything else? It's an argument from greater to lesser. If he did the greatest thing, will he not also do the lesser thing? If he gave his only son, would he not also do everything he promised to us? Do you feel the confidence that comes in that statement? The the confidence that at the cross we see a God who was willing to go all the way? And if he was willing to go all the way, it means that he can take care of all of us along the way. He's got this. The cross is the proof. This is why Paul finished Romans 8 with three of the best verses you'll ever read. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. In all these things, listen, we're going to face the stuff that he lists. But in all those things, we're more than conquerors. If you're an NBA fan and maybe you watched Cleveland last night, almost snatched defeat from victory, right? Like just almost choked that game away. They won by one point because Indiana missed the last second shot. 
We don't win in Christ like that. We're more than conquerors. We're not barely sliding by. We're more than conquerors. And Paul knew that. Why? Because he was a good guy? No, because God had done all the work at the cross. We are more than conquerors in Christ. And then he says this, For I am convinced. I am convinced. That Greek word for convinced means to make friends with. To be persuaded. And so here's what Paul's saying. I have, I've made peace. I've made friends with the fact that I might experience all these things down here, but nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have made friends with the fact that God stands for me. And is no longer against me. Now, at this point, I, I was hoping that I would have preached such an amazing message that you would be convinced. You would not need any more proof. And yet I know that sometimes, you know, a small preacher in a small town might not be enough. And so I have brought in one of the best preachers in America to make obvious to you what I have just laid out for you. He couldn't fly in, so by video, John Piper. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the hard to the easy, from the insurmountable to the easily surmountable. And it goes like this. If he didn't spare his own son, which is an impossible thing to imagine, that he would hand his son over to butchery. If he could overcome the obstacle of his love for his son and thus kill him, nothing would stop him from fulfilling whatever goal he had in doing that. Because that's the hardest thing imaginable for God. What could be harder to imagine for God than to give his son up to spitting and beating and a crown of thorns and lashes and nails and spear and mocking and rejection and betrayal and abandonment and lying and the burden of the sins of the world. What could be harder for God than to say, I will give my infinitely worthy son to that kind of horror? Nothing is harder for God to do than that. And Paul's reasoning is, if he could get over that obstacle to our salvation, nothing would stop him from giving us everything with him, which is good for sin. I want you to believe that. He is for you always in all circumstances without any exceptions if you are in Christ. Never against us. None of our sicknesses is a penalty from a God who's against us. None of our broken cars or failed appliances is a punishment from God. 
none of our marital strife is a sign of his wrath. None of our lost jobs is a penalty for our sin. None of our wayward children is a crack of the whip of God's retribution. What an amazing difference it would make in our lives if we believe this. Look to Jesus. Love the cross. Live in love and fear no more. Just bow your heads. On the, on the day that all of us come together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we still have an enemy and he would love nothing more today than to convince you that somehow the cross is in the distant past and that it does not affect you today. That somehow God is still against you. But listen, the cross is the greatest proof of the greatest love we've ever seen. And it is proof that God is no longer condemning us. He is inviting us into a relationship with him. He is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can make a charge against us? Who can separate us? Nobody. Nobody. This morning, my prayer has been that you would come to realize, like Paul did, that you would make friends with the truth that God at the cross has punished sin and there is no more punishment for you. Only an invitation to life. I pray that this morning you would know the freedom the truth that God is for us, period. And if you're here this morning, you, you've never even made a decision to follow Jesus because all this time you're pretty sure that if you did, he would beat you silly. Then you have seen a God that you never knew, a God who is not in a bad mood, a God who has paid the penalty through his own son for the sins that we've committed. And offers you forgiveness and freedom. You may be here as, a, as you've attended church your whole life. And here we are, Easter Sunday morning. And for the first time, you're starting to get the fact that God is no longer mad at you. I just want you to just raise your hand and say, that's me. I, I want to just acknowledge that that's what God's showing me today. You've never followed Jesus. Or this morning, you just I'm coming back to a God who loves me. And is not angry at me and is for me. If that's you, just want to respond this morning. Just put your hand in the air and say, that's me. And we'll close it out and we'll pray. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Church, let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for this truth, God, that you are not against us. I personally confess to you, God, that I grew up my entire life seeing you as this really mad man who just wanted to hurt me because I had caused your son to die. But God, what we realize today is that it was a willing sacrifice from a good father, a loving God, who wanted to invite 
his creation back into relationship with him. And God, I am overwhelmed by the price you paid for that. I'm overwhelmed that you would sacrifice your only son for that. And the price you paid just shows the value you put on the relationship we have. And I say thank you. I pray for those this morning that God, by raising their hand, just said, man, that's me, Paul. I'm seeing God in a new light for the first time. I'm realizing again that he's not mad at me, that he has punished sin, and it's finished. There's no more bill to pay, and I am leaving this place free to serve, free to stand for people because you stood for people. We don't serve because we get brownie points. We serve people because you're for people. And you want us to be as well. And we thank you for it, Father. In your name, Jesus. Amen.